If you haven't heard the first two that Josh preached, excellent sermon, so go there. Um, we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 19, just the first 18 verses. 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 18. Let me read that together for us, and then we'll pray, and we'll look at God's Word. And we do have some Bibles here, if you do need a Bible. Thank you, gentlemen. Just raise your hand if you need one. You can take one with you if you want as well. Um, 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. And then speaking of Elijah, he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. <clears throat> and he arose, excuse me, <clears throat> and he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the food 40 days <clears throat> and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. If I might ask someone just for a cup of water, come and thank you. Thank you. He was already on it. Then he came, <clears throat> or there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Thank you, Jordan. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. <clears throat> and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shephat, of Abomola, <clears throat> you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, 
shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, your word is described in your word as a fire. Your word is living and active. Your word is power. These are not the words of mere men. These are not the empty accolades of a false god. These are the words of the living God, and your words are living. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you please help me to open up your word? Would you please give us ears to hear, Holy Spirit? Without you, nothing good can happen. Lord, we love you, we trust you, we thank you for meeting with us, and I pray now for your help for all that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We've looked at Elijah and the widow, 1 Kings 17, and Elijah and the prophets of Baal, 1 Kings 18. And today we look at Elijah and the living God, 1 Kings 19. Now, it might be better up front to switch the order of the names and entitle this sermon, The Living God and Elijah. This is a message about God's dealings with a discouraged saint. If you've ever been discouraged, disillusioned, disheartened, or despairing, I truly hope that there's a word of encouragement for you this morning from God's Word. We have three headings for our outline. Um, Number one, the setting, verses one through four. Number two, the basics, verses five through eight. And number three, the focus, verses nine through 18. First Kings 19. I'm convinced that this is the passage that James was thinking of when near the end of his letter, and of course he didn't have chapters when he wrote this letter, but in chapter 5, verse 17, James says that Elijah was a man just like us. That's how the NIV translates that phrase. James, in chapter 5, when he brings up the issue of suffering, he's considering suffering, writing this letter to the scattered Christians abroad. He speaks of the patience and the suffering of the prophets, and the, the suffering and the steadfastness of Job. Those are the people that come to his mind when he speaks about suffering. And then in James 5.13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And then he goes to the other side of the spectrum. Is any among you cheerful? Is any among you happy? And his answer is almost the same. It's a word almost spelled the same. Let him pray praise. But praise is a kind of prayer also. If you're suffering, pray to God. If you're happy, praise God. And then he says, is any among you sick? What should you do if you're sick? He says, call for the elders of the church and let them pray for you. And then he says to brothers and sisters that we should confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. And that if we've committed sins, they shall be forgiven us. And then he says in 5.16, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And he's thinking about prayer 
And he thinks about 1 Kings 17 and 18. He thinks about Elijah. Um, So in James chapter 5, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth, earth produced its crops. I want to ask you, where did James get that little phrase, Elijah was a man just like us? I don't think this is the Holy Spirit infusing revelation into James while he's writing his epistle. And I don't think he's just writing a general truism, you know, all humans have the same nature. James knew his Bible. The writers of our Bibles know their Bibles, all that that was written before them. And James is thinking about 1 Kings 17, 18, thinking about Elijah, Elijah, and he thinks about 1 Kings 19, I think. He sees that Elijah is a man just like us. Because he sees here his frailty, his shared weakness right here in the account of 1 Kings 19. We're talking about Elijah. This guy runs in elite circles. Talking Moses, Elijah, Jesus, like Mount of Transfiguration kind of circles. That Elijah. John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner, is described in Scripture as coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. That guy. Elijah is one of two men in all of Scripture, only two, that didn't see death. You have this company of two in all the history of the world, Elijah and Enoch, that Elijah. This Moses-like, John the Baptist-like, Enoch-like hero of Scripture, this righteous man prayed amazing prayers. This man said, James, um, and I think the, the author of the book of Kings, this man is a man just like me and you. And I think James is going to help us embrace the human condition and help us interpret Scripture. He's going to help us interpret this passage. I had a meeting uh, recently with some men. Later that night, I got home after the meeting, and something I've done actually since I was 19, I started a journal. I don't do it all the time. I do a couple days in a row, skip a day, week, month, two months, three months done it a long time, though. Later that night, I was writing some things in my journal about this meeting, and uh, I was about to pen what happened, and the thought came to my mind, that meeting just couldn't have turned out any better than I could have asked. That's how it went. It was just such a good meeting, but I couldn't write that because that wasn't true. I had asked. I I had family members and friends that also prayed with me. We asked. And God answered that prayer. It was just one of these little things. I I don't recount a lot of times of answered prayer. And I don't know, but more and more I think about that. And it was such a kindness to me that God answered this prayer. Um. Some of you know me, though. I'm a real ordinary guy. Um, I'm not that righteous guy. I'm not that Elijah-type guy that prays. Um, I don't feel like I'm that kind of guy. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. But, you know, when I look at 1 Kings 19, I don't feel like at this moment Elijah would feel he's that kind of guy. 
I get encouraged when I hear about a man like Elijah praying effectual, powerful prayers when I realize he's a man just like me. So back to our first heading, the setting, the first four verses here. This is a story, a true story about God dealing with a dejected, depressed servant named Elijah. Just like us, his life didn't happen in a vacuum. The days of Elijah were difficult days. These were evil days. In fact, the text through 1 Kings here, talking about the various kings, virtually every king, quote, did more evil than the king that was before them. This happens over and over already just in the early chapters of 1 Kings. This is definitely true of King Ahab and the queen that's pulling the strings of the king, basically, Queen Jezebel. Do we have any girls named Jezebel here this morning? This is why we don't have that. This text. That's why there's no Jezebels. I've never met a Jezebel. This queen is why that's so. Though dead, so to speak, she still speaks. Elijah's coming off in in chapter 19, off this amazing and courageous head-to-head victory over the false prophets of Baal. In many ways, the way chapter 18 ended You would expect chapter 19 for revival to break out. We read in chapter 18, verse 39, at the end of this ordeal with the prophets of Baal who could not get any answer from their false God who doesn't exist, who couldn't answer or do anything. And they prayed to the true God and he sent down fire and it licked up not just the water, but the wood and the rocks and the dust and everything. After all that happens, all the people, 1839, all the people fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But then we read in our text this main note from Ahab who apparently told her all that happened. But the emphasis is on, yeah, Elijah had all the prophets of Baal killed with the sword. That's what went down. So Jezebel's bloody threat, then verse 2, so may the gods do to me more also if I do not make your life as one of their lives by tomorrow. Now verse 3, I don't think is hyperbole or exaggeration. Elijah is really running for his life. That's why he flees to Beersheba. This is way on the southern end of of Judah. You've heard that phrase that's used in Scripture a few different places, from Dan to Beersheba. It's just the Bible way to talk about Dan way up in the north to Beersheba, way down in the south. He, he pretty much got as far away as he could get in the land of Israel down south in Beersheba. Now, it seems a little crazy, I know, to all of us that this righteous prophet, threatened by Jezebel and her false gods that don't exist, that can't do anything, it seems a little crazy that he's scared running for his life. But I don't think we should be too hard on Elijah Because God is not hard on Elijah. The first part of verse 3, then he was afraid. And then the end of verse 4 sets up the rest of the chapter. The last part of verse 4 says, and he asked that he might die. It is enough. Lord, take away my life. I'm I'm no better than my father's. I I don't think I've ever literally ran for my life from an animal, from a person, I don't think I ever have. I've never been at that point by the grace of God in my life where I wanted to ask God to take my life. But I know people 
that have been in that place. Um, believers who've been in that place. Actually, there are a fair amount of godly people in the scripture who said similar things. Job says essentially this in Job chapter 10. Jeremiah asks for this, Jeremiah 20. Jonah cries out for this, Jonah 4. And let me put a verse on the screen, Moses, because Moses and Elijah have a lot in common. Numbers 11, 14, and 15, Moses says, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. So Moses, too, like Elijah, a man just like me and you. None of these people took their lives. Rather, they asked God to take their lives for them. Um, but that brings up a couple things we should probably say here. There have been Christians that have taken their lives. That's never a good thing. But I would be very slow if I were you to ever pass judgment on the momentary lapse in the life of a brother or sister in their darkness. There's people that have attempted and it's not happened, and there's people that have attempted and it happened. This has happened to Christians, to people who love Jesus. This is because they're ordinary people just like me and you too. But secondly, this reminds us that prayer to God is one of the places to go if you ever do have thoughts like that. Now, I assure you, I don't think it's the only place you should go. You really need to get this out. This is not the kind of thing you can handle on your own. But, but go to God. Do, do what we're reading here that Elijah is doing. Pour out your heart to God that you don't know if you want to live anymore, if some thoughts like that come to you. But confide in somebody. Find a brother or sister. You literally can't handle this kind of stuff by yourself. This is serious stuff. What does Elijah mean when he says at the end of verse 4, for I am no better than my father's? You know, some commentators have suggested that he's probably saying, you know, just like all my forefathers, all the prophets that were before me, we, we, we don't have a good track record, we don't have a good success rate, and, and just like them, man, here I do all this stuff for God, and I, nobody's following God, I, I'm alone. Maybe there's something to that, not seeing any fruit, but I, but I think there's more than that. And here's where I think, honestly, that little phrase in James, brothers and sisters, can help us. Elijah was a man just like me and you. Now, even if you're not to the point of saying, Lord, I, I'm done, I, please take my life. Even if you're not there, you've been down, you've been discouraged, you've been in a place that's not really good spiritually, what if you, in that moment, said something like, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm no better than anybody else in my family. I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm no better than... What would you mean if you said something like that? I think you'd mean... I'm going to just go ahead because I have it here twice. I think you'd be kind of like Moses, too. What did he say at the end there? If you treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. You know, when you go through really dark times, really deep times, you know, we're complex people. We can, on the one hand, be, you know, thinking too highly of ourselves, higher than we should think, and on the other hand, be here, be spiraling downward into this, and 
man, when you get down there, sometimes the only common denominator is your junk. I'm no better than anybody. When you, you know your heart, you don't see other people's hearts, and in love you ought to presume they don't think the kind of thoughts you think. Love does not think that kind of stuff about other people, but you know your own heart. You know the ugliness that's there. I think that's Elijah. He's a man, just like us. And he realizes that, if not for the grace of God, I am just like everybody that's gone before me, all the idolaters of Israel. That's the setting. <clears throat> Secondly, the basics. The basics. And I just say here, the patient has come. Elijah has come. He's fallen asleep on God's couch. God owns all the trees on earth. If you can find a little place under the tree, you're on God's couch. And things are coming in this chapter. Things are coming kind of unusual in twos in today's passage. passage. There's phrases that are doubled. There's quotations that are doubled. There's answers that are doubled. I think the reason that we have this repetition in God's dealings with Elijah is because it's showing us God's patience. That's what I, what I think is at work there. The angel of the Lord touches him twice and says to him twice, Arise and eat. This is not the first reference in the Bible to angel food cake. It's not that. And it's also proof that the keto diet that I happen to be on is not fully scriptural. <laughs> He's giving them carbs here. But water, that's good. So you who know a little bit about interpretation, the water here is prescriptive. The cake is descriptive. Drink the water, cake, no, don't, it's not, no, okay, that's for a couple of you. That was a little inside seminary joke that didn't go over that good. <laughs> so, the first work of God in dealing with a discouraged saint is just this, the basics. He addresses basic needs. When a man is hungry, he needs some food. When he's tired, he needs rest. When he's thirsty, he needs water. So, rest, food, and water for Elijah. Now, maybe for you, basic stuff means you need some medication. Maybe you need exercise. Sometimes this can be revolutionary for people. A good night's sleep can change things. Hydration can make you feel so much better. But, but maybe, maybe there's physical needs that require more, more complicated. You know, there's physiological issues that maybe need to be explored. You know, we as Christians, we, you, we can live in such a spiritual realm sometimes that we ignore some of these basic raw facts of physiology and the body we live in. You might need some help that way. Maybe the stress a person is under requires some concrete changes in their life. I mean, even certain jobs and home living situations, destructive relationships, abuse, turmoil, God's going to deal with that stuff up front. He's dealing with the whole person. And in, in dealing with the whole person, he starts with the practical stuff, the physical stuff, the concrete, basic needs. The angel here, verse 7, is the angel of the Lord. So called the angel in one verse, the angel of the Lord. So apparently the angel of the Lord, which is God incarnate, pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, God appearing as, as a person or as an angel, the angel of the Lord, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Now, I looked at this passage a lot. Elijah hasn't said where he's going. 
and the Lord hasn't told him to go anywhere. But he wants him to eat, so he has sustenance. The Lord's going to provide for him because he has a journey that's too great for him. Well, just remember that the Lord knows where we're going to go even before we plan where we're going to go. This food is a spiritual divine provision. The strength of it is going to allow him to go what's probably 200 miles from Beersheba to Horeb to Mount Sinai. We don't know exactly where Mount Sinai was, but, you know, guesstimations of surrounding mountains, 180, 200 miles. But this is through mountainous, desert, hard. This is not an easy journey even over the 40 days. That 40-day fast makes you think of Moses again, doesn't it? Beyond Moses, somebody else did a 40-day fast. Jesus. You can't really read through the life of Elijah without being struck by a number of parallels between him and Moses. Uh, Commentator John Salehammer writes, The writer of, of Kings appears to have cast the story of Elijah as a parallel to that of Moses. There's a parallel between Moses and Elijah. Both of them are major prophets in the Old Testament, probably the premier representative, representatives of the prophets, the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. They both engage in remarkable demonstrations of the miraculous power of God. When you read through the Exodus miracles of Moses and then when you read through Elijah and Elisha, the miracles they do, the only thing that surpasses it are the miracles of Jesus Christ. He does amazing miracles. Moses parted the Red Sea. Elijah parts the Jordan River. They both stood up to powerful kings, Pharaoh and Ahab. They both spent 40 days and 40 nights either on the mountain or on the way to the mountain en route to Mount Sinai. The two of them did that. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the mountain in the sight of all the people. A devouring fire. Elijah's the man who on Mount Carmel, the fire fell down from heaven and consumed everything. Moses was on the east bank of the Jordan when God took him in death, but it says that nobody knew where God buried him. Elijah, too, was on the east side of the Jordan when God took him straight to heaven, not buried anywhere, a little bit similar to Moses. So let's come to the setting, the basics, and now... Thirdly, the focus. The focus of God's dealing with a discouraged saint. And under this, I'm going to have round one, round two, and what I think is a footnote at the very end of verse 18. So round one, and you'll see both these cycles are very parallel. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah. God asks a question, the same question. Elijah gives an answer. It's the same answer. There's parallel accounts here. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, we read in verse 9. Now, we don't have conclusive proof that this cave is the cleft in the rock that Moses was in when the, when the glory of God passed by Moses. It's probably not that same cave, that same cleft. But we can't help but notice such similarities. Where in the Bible do two men go up on a mountain to be at the entrance of a cave and have this amazing experience of awe and wonder with the Lord passing by. Where does that ever happen? Well, it happens twice. We're looking at one of them here with Elijah. And then it happened in Exodus 33 and 34 with Moses. And then beyond that, you see it's Moses and Elijah that had this kind of experience. And it was on the same mountain. 
both on the same mountain. This all happened on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. How can we not link these things? We're supposed to link these things. We're supposed to know our Bible to link these things. Notice all the, also the parallels between verses 9 and 10, 13b and 14. The word comes to Elijah twice, same question, same answer. So take a look at that question. God says to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, God knew why Elijah was there. God doesn't ask questions because he needs information. Adam, where are you? God knows. God has, God uses questions for a different purpose. He's usually drawing somebody out or prompting some self-examination in the, per, in the person. And we'll let that answer come out in just a moment, but it's also, I think, worth, worth asking, does Elijah answer God's question? I think he does. I think Elijah's basically saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? I, I'm here because your people have all turned away just like they turned away from Moses. I mean, Moses felt all alone. And, but think about this. What, what if you're a prophet and you felt isolated, alone, everybody was out to get you, and there was this mountain known among your people as the mountain of God, that very mountain where God had met with Moses, not just to give him the Ten Commandments, but that mountain where God revealed himself to Moses, where God answered his request to show Moses his glory. Now, wouldn't that possibly be a place if you were in a situation like the prophet Elijah to find some protection, maybe get some help to deal with these rebellious people, nobody's following God. And maybe, just maybe, maybe in the back of his heart, Elijah wants to get a glimpse of the glory of God that he read about in the book of Exodus. Verses 11 through 13, the Lord passes by. Now, why is nothing else said? It just happens. What are you doing here, Elijah? Oh, I'm jealous for you, God, just serving you. Nobody else is. They're killing all the prophets. They're about to kill me. And then it just, it just happens. Now, whether Elijah was wanting this or not, we can't be certain. But as to whether Elijah needed this, I think we can. This is what God does in patience, having dealt with basic needs with his depressed servant. God does this for Elijah. So let me start at verse 13 to try to explain how I understand these verses 11 through 13. Verse 13, and when Elijah heard the sound of the low whisper, he wrapped his face in a cloak. Now, it's most likely that he wrapped his face with his coat, cloak, to shield himself probably from seeing God. I mean, he read his Bible. He knew his Bible, Exodus 33, 20, where God said to Moses, you can't see my face for man shall not see me and live. This is a Bible basic going back to the book of Genesis when Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. Afterward, he, he realizes who this is. I've wrestled with God and he's amazed that he's still alive because who can see God and live? Judges chapter 6, verse 22, Gideon perceives that it was the angel of the Lord that had come to him, and he thought, too, that he was going to die. Now, there may be a little more here for Elijah. I have no doubt that Elijah knew about Exodus 33 and 34, when God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and passed by to display his glory. He knew it well enough to know 
I would say that the way to apprehend the living God is not by seeing, but by hearing. That's what we learn in Exodus 33 and 34. Um, What did God do when he showed his glory to Moses? He hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. He passed by, said, you can see my backside, not my front side. But when he passed by, when the glory of the Lord passed by, the Lord proclaimed truths. Yahweh, Yahweh, El, the Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, slow to anger, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty. In the words of the reformer Martin Luther, Moses puts his eyes in his ears and he saw the glory of God by listening. That's what happened in Exodus 33 and 34. He saw the glory of God by listening to God proclaim his name and his glory. Now notice what happens here with Elijah. God sends wind, wind so forceful in the words of the NIV that it tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks, that kind of wind, like hurricane kind of wind. This is wind that could be felt. Its effects could be clearly seen. And then there's earthquake and there's fire, this shaking and this heat and this devastation. But the text says that the Lord was not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. And then at the end of verse 12, the sound of a low whisper. Notice this sequence, verse 13. When Elijah heard the low whisper, then he wrapped his face with the cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. This is kind of interesting. First of all, note back at the first part of verse 11, God had said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. That's how this scene started. Go out and stand on the mountain. I'm sure Moses went out. Then you have this earth, wind, and fire show happen, verses 11 and 12, this massive demonstration of God's power. You know, verses 11 and 12, this this wind and earthquake and fire, all of that, that that's physically for Elijah what Job 38:41 is emotionally to Job or you and I when we read those chapters. You know how epic those chapters are in Job 38, 39, 40, 41. God, where were you when I did this? This is amazing, awesome stuff. Elijah's getting that like physically happening right outside um, the cave. Uh, this overwhelming sense of being in the presence of God, the creator, the upholder of the universe, this is weighty, weighty stuff that's happening that he's kind of taking in with his whole body. And then verse 13, when he hears the whisper, when he hears the whisper, he wraps his head and it says he goes out. He goes out of, to the entrance of the cave. He's in the cave now. So apparently that overwhelming display of God's power and the earthquake and the wind and the fire had driven driven Elijah back into the cave. God's greatness was too much for mortal Elijah. And then in this awestruck, fearful moment, he hears the sound of a whisper. And the text implies, I I think the text is implying this, you all I'm sure agree, when it says that God wasn't in the wind and he wasn't in the earthquake and he wasn't in the fire, what's the implication He was in the still, small voice. He was in the whisper. God is in the whisper. 
I think Elijah realizes that. He hears a, a whisper, and he knows God's in it. But let that sink in for a minute. He's inside the cave. Right outside the cave is God. He's about to walk out into the presence of the holy God. So he covers his face with his coat. And then what happens when you do that? He goes out, you, you can't see, but you can hear. And then he goes out and I think he listens. And then God speaks to him again. I think God was bringing him back to where he needed to go back to, to listening to the word of God. Probably maybe back to Exodus 34, 6, and 7, that monumental text that's quoted over and over and over in the Old Testament. He needed to be reminded of the goodness and the greatness of the living of God. Back to whatever it was that he knew about God and his word. He needed God's word. He needed to be drawn to listen to what God said. Brothers and sisters, I would say when you get in a spot like Elijah, if you're there, God's going to bring you back to his word. He's going to bring you back to those things that he's shown you before. He's, it's time to recalibrate. It's time to renew your mind. I don't know what you're going through, but this I know. If you're going to navigate those difficult days, then you're going to have to go back to listening to the word of God. That's going to be one of the most important things when you're in these places like Elijah, listening to the word of God. That's round one. Round two, verses 13b through 17. Same question, same answer. You know, in a lot of ways, what I think 1 Kings 19 is overall, this, this whole chapter is Exodus 34, 6, and 7, this revelation of God lived out, fleshed out for us. This is what Exodus 34, 6, and 7 looks like when God's helping one of his servants that are discouraged. This is what it looks like for God to be compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and rich in steadfast love and faithfulness toward his discouraged servant. This whole chapter is God being that to Elijah. I'm not sure if it's all sinking into Elijah. I mean, round one, I think he's getting it. You know, I, I need to listen. Now round two, after God brings you back to listen. Here's round two in this restoration. Now do. Having listened, the new instruction is do. Having heard the word, now be a doer of the word. Look at those two responses by Moses after he gives those same verbatim speeches. In verse 11, round one, God had said, after Moses said his piece, God said to him, God said, go out and stand on the mountain. And that's where God passes by and re-reveals his glory to Elijah. Look at round two, verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. I got some work for you to do. There's some people to anoint, some kings and, and another prophet. Go out and stand and go and return. To put this another way, verse 11, first there needs to be some Mary time. And then after that, we need some Martha time. If you know that allusion to the New Testament, Mary first went and sat at the feet of Jesus. That's the place to start. Go be like Mary. But then eventually you got you to gotta get up and, and be like Martha. 
and do the work that needs to be done. There needs to be time for recalibrating, refreshment, and then it's get back to doing what God has called us to do. In the light of this twofold same response from Elijah, verse 10 and verse 14, let me just tell you what is a dangerous place for a Christian to be in. That's being in a spot where you begin to think and embrace that nobody else is going through the kinds of things that you're going through. Sometimes we feel that way. I'm just warning you, I'm just telling you, you're in a place of temptation when you're in that spot, when you think that you're all alone, that you're the only one suffering like you're suffering. That's a place of temptation. I'm not trying to minimize the seriousness of what any of you might be going through. I'm not denying that there are situations indeed that are dire. Read the book of Job. That's dire. And many of us at some point or another, you may have been through really dire things. This world is broken, fallen, cruel, evil, grueling. I'm just trying to remind ourselves that there's a bigger picture than we sometimes see when we're spiraling down into we're the only one suffering like this. My point is that when we feel isolated, temptation is crouching at the door, and it's so easy to slip into this self-pity and despair and embitterment. So many things that can foster isolation. Your your shame over things can can make you feel more isolated. You know, the trials, the, the, the things you're going through, infertility, death, loss of a job, I mean, there's so many things. You can feel so alone. But then there's also another side of this, um, similar to this. Uh, it's very much like it, but it's arrived at from an opposite direction. And this other mindset or state actually gets its name from the passage that we're reading. You could Google this. It'll come up with, I did it. Well, I'm exaggerating. At least six, but I think dozens of references to this, the Elijah complex. Some of you have heard of that. The Elijah syndrome. From this text, the thought that I alone am faithful. It's not I am alone in my suffering or I am alone in all this hard stuff happening. Nobody can relate to that, but I alone am faithful. Now, most of us would say in the surface, well, that's not my problem. I mean... I know tons of people are more faithful than me. I don't really have a hang-up thinking I'm like the only prophet left on earth. But I would say it could look a little different. It could be you being part of a church where you think like, we're really the only place the truth is preached. I mean, there just aren't other faithful churches, you know. You could feel that about a denomination, an association, a group of churches. That would be a little bit of a Elijah syndrome. Um, it may be something like this. You feel that you see things that nobody else sees. And maybe this is born of being hurt in church. You, you, you see, nobody else sees this. You see all churches are jacked up. They got problems. You know, you're, you're, you're all alone in that conviction. And it's easily happened if you've been hurt. I just want to say, brothers and sisters, guard against isolation. 
One of the best remedies for the woe is me is be with God, get back in the saddle, get back on mission, get back to doing what God wants you to do. There's kings that got to be appointed here. There's a prophet that needs to be onboarded. There's justice that needs to happen. Listen to God, then, then do. Most of you are aware that Arlie and I, just in this last year, a year ago, we lost both our moms within about six-week span, and Arlie's dad died about six weeks ago, and my dad died just last Wednesday. We lost our moms and our dads, and that's just kind of background stuff for me, you know? I mean, you, you deal with that, can't help but have emotional moments. Um, we're waiting, trying to figure out this next phase of our life. Um, we're so thankful for Arlie's job at Visiting Angels. She's doing well. It's a little weary. I, I want my wife home more, you know. It's a temporary season. It's been a privilege for me to work for Randy Alcorn for a number of years. But it's a bit part-time. It's hard to do more than part-time. It just is kind of draining mentally as a research assistant. I love it. But I've needed something more, more money and insurance and benefits and these kinds of things. And so some of you know that recently I have been looking for work and found a job and man, out of a ton of people that applied, it got down to a couple of us and ended up two of us. And then the other guy had literal sales experience in that field. And so I got the letter say, thank you so much. We thought you would have been a good fit, but we got another guy that's just perfect. And then the next day it all got flipped on its head and they call me back and this new employee called in sick his first day at work. And the guy said, I've never done this, but I just can't trust that. So how'd you like to come in, fill out some paperwork, and start working for us? So I started there a couple weeks ago. It's just been terrific, amazing. It seems like a good fit. Brain overload, trying to learn some new things about a whole new industry. And then literally like Friday, two weeks into this, I, I was thinking of Rick I had a moment where I finally felt like I got a tangible hurdle over, you know. I'm feeling so much to absorb, but ah, I'm feeling better. And every day was really good. And then late Friday afternoon, my boss wanted to chat for a few minutes before I went home, and, and I got laid off. Um, ends up, I don't know why. Um, all he told me, he was super apologetic um, right after I got hired, two days later, unbeknown to him, he said, two days later, a longtime employee who works the front desk put in their two-week notice. And this is a person that, like, does a lot of things. You know, I, even when I started, when I found out this gal is leaving, oh, this is going to make it a little more challenging because she just has her hand in everything, you know, and five people in an office, one person that does a lot, that's going to be hard. But so we've been working through that the last week and a half, the whole time I've been there. They're having meetings, trying to sort out how to do this. And at the end of the day, they just, he said, Bob, I hate this. I'm, I am so sorry. Um, I hate to burn bridges with you. I just, we're revamping things. They've got their wives that do work from home. They're bringing more people in. They're changing that front position. He said, I don't know. I don't know all the reasons. I don't know. He just said a little bit and he said, we just got to let you go. I, I'm so sorry. Okay. <laughs> You know, that, that happens, brothers and sisters. I would say this morning that if something good comes from this sermon, first of all, 100% to God's glory. It certainly isn't me. But God uses means. 
and one of the means he uses, used in my life was Friday, that day. It seemed like such a good thing. You know, it's like, okay, I'm not Elijah. I'm not, okay, take me out, you know, by the grace of God. But, but I'm not, not, not even close to that, you know. But I am telling you that, that well, one, don't preach on texts they assign you, you know, with things like this of being depressed or, you know. No, that all aside. You know what, one of the best things about this has been for me is that in preparing for this, it, it just took me places that I wouldn't have gone if that hadn't happened. I, it was good. I, I feel so unready this morning in a lot of ways, but it's been rich in God's word. It's been rich praying um, Elijah was a man like you and me, brothers and sisters. Moses was a man like you and me. But you know what? We need a man like you and me. We really do. Moses wasn't that man. Elijah wasn't that man. They spoke about that man. These two men had union with that man. They, they actually saw that man. Centuries later, they meet that man on a mountain. Not the same mountain, but another mountain. And he was and is more of a man than any man that has ever lived. We needed a man, and God sent this man. He was everything we are and also everything that we're not. Exactly what we needed, this man. And this man knows the human condition. He solved the human condition by his death on a mountain, a mountain we call Calvary. The God of galaxies, the creator, the God with whom earthquakes and hurricanes and everlasting fire, these are small things, brothers and sisters. The living God came into this world not with lightning and thunder, not with applause and trumpet and royal acclaim. He came into this world like a little whisper, a little baby in a nondescript little town that hardly anybody sees. That's what God did. And then there came a day... There came a day when, when that man pulled back the veil for a moment. He took a few of his disciples onto a mountain, Peter, James, and John. And they get up on the mountain, and all of a sudden, two men appear with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, and Jesus. And Peter, spokesman for them all, but they all were thinking the same thing. This is awesome. Let's make three tabernacles. One for Elijah, one for Moses, one for you. This is great. We got the three greatest of all time here. He didn't know what he was saying. A cloud overshadowed them, and, and the two men, Moses and Elijah, were gone, and it was only Jesus. And then we read this account. Peter said to the Lord Jesus, It's good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking, and behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Beyond Moses, beyond Elijah, beyond everybody. 
Draw near to God. You want to see the glory of God? You see it in Jesus Christ. He is the exact imprint of the divine nature in human flesh. This man spoke for God. His words were living words. And you know what's so crazy today? People act like Jesus is just like anybody else. People read his words and they don't see it for what it is. Their eyes aren't open to who this man is. Jesus Christ. Let me just wrap up. There's a little footnote, verse 18. God says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. We're reminded, a little footnote, Elijah, you got this a little off. You're not alone. I think 7,000 is probably a round number, a big divine kind of round number. I don't think he's saying literally that, but you can be assured of this, brothers and sisters, at any time and place. God is faithful to have his remnant. He has his people. There are faithful people serving Christ, loving Christ, living for Christ all the time. And we're not going to... Good, I wanted to get just to that verse. So the other thing I think that's highlighted here at the end is, yeah, we should pray. Yeah, we need God's word. Yeah, we need to then go do what God says we should do. Um... And then we have this footnote passage here where we need to remember we can't do this alone. It's do this together, all of us. In fact, when we come to church, part of what we're doing today is this from Ecclesiastes 5.1. Guard your steps when you come to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they're doing evil. Even in churches of Jesus Christ, there are people coming together offering the sacrifices of fools, and they don't even know that they're not pleasing God. You want to come with the right posture, brothers and sisters? You come to church, you come to this day, a few people already said it to me, the best day of your week, and you come to listen. You come to see the glory of God with your eyes closed, listening to the word of God, listening to the praises of God, listening to God, and he will show himself to you. Okay. What have I been doing since Friday? Been praying. Been doing some basics. Man, I just, I clear my head exercising. That like literally helps me. But I'll tell you, there's nothing like God's word. And when you go through things, God's word is better, it's more. You become a better exegete when you get older. Your kids read the Psalms. That's kind of cool, Dad. Man, get a few years under your belt and read the Psalms. This stuff is rich. And I've been looking forward to the fellowship of the saints. And then come Monday morning, you know what? Let's get back at it. Let's go do it. Because God is good. He's going to take care of us. Let's worship God in song as we follow. Let me pray and then we'll come to the tables and then sing. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all the things that are written beforehand for our instruction that we, through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, might have hope. It's a solid hope, Lord. It's not an empty thing. It's a real thing. 
Because you're a real God, you are really good. And Lord, we're going to trust you by your grace. Help us, help us in our weakness, Lord. Bless my brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, all praise and glory to you. No man was more misunderstood, no man was more mistreated, no man was worthy of all praise in the heights and yet treated despicably horrible. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for dying for sinners. We thank you for living a righteous life that we might have righteousness given to us. Lord, we we remember you now as we come to your table. We love you. We proclaim your death until you come. And we pray, come quickly. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.